Can I listen to your podcast? All right. Welcome to Middle School Music, where old school meets new school. I'm one of your hosts, Farhan Lalji, and with me is Dario Duet. Dario, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm so excited. Uh, there's been so much happening in the music space again. Indeed. I say this every week, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean for real this time. I don't know if you remember from our last episode, we were talking about, you know, do chart rankings really matter? Um, and speaking about some of the contentious issues surrounding album releases and chart rankings. Well, Billboard's actually just set new rules for counting merchandise album bundles. So starting on January 3rd, 2020, Album sales will only be counted as part of bundles if every item in the bundle is sold at the same time. And those items have to be sold individually on an artist's official direct-to-consumer website. Interesting. So what do you think that's going to mean for, for like you know, some of the things that we've seen in the past in terms of with whether it was DJ Khaled or some of the other artists that we talked about? Do you think this would kind of massively change uh, who ends up on top and, and how things get kind of ranked and scored? Well, the the change in rules won't alter the formula for album sales paired with concert tickets. And that's historically been actually the biggest driver to um, chart positions. Uh, You know, recently you've started with merchandise bundles and even more billboards now also introduced an additional rule saying that merchandise items and bundles must be sold for a lower price than the complete package. So any bundle must be priced at least $3.49 more than the loan merchandise item in order for it to qualify as an album sale on the charts. Gotcha. It'll be interesting to see how artists try to kind of bend some of these rules to kind of maximize their kind of record sales in the future based on some of these rule changes um, as well. It'll, it'll definitely start to happen, so I can't wait to see how this unfolds. And speaking of Billboard and charts and, and numbers, uh, we're also getting into music award season. We just had the uh, AMAs or the American Music Awards um, with the winners kind of happening. Uh, this week, a couple of days ago, Taylor Swift making some news in terms of getting, uh, what was it, artist of the whatever it was, kind of. Artist of the year. Artist of the year. Yeah, um, yeah and, and also kind of throwing some shade at, at Scooter Braun with her choice in outfits in terms of wearing uh, all the names of all of her past albums that she can't or she doesn't have some of the royalties and, and kind of the IP around anymore. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see her choice in outfits and her performance. The the artist of the year win was was a bit surprising as well. I felt. What did you think about that? Yeah, completely. I was. She beat Drake, Ariana Grande, Halsey, and Post Malone. You know, I personally don't think Taylor Swift's most recent album is that great. I guess the American public or the the voting board feels differently. Um, I would have expected that to have gone probably to Post Malone at this point in time. But overall, I think there were some great winners. You saw Billie Eilish winning New Artist of the Year. Uh, collaboration of the year, Sean Mendes and Camila Cabello. Um, favorite male artist actually went to Khalid, um, mm. and he beat out Drake and Post Malone. But did you know Go on. that the um, that the MTV European Music Awards were about three weeks ago? Oh my god! And uh, totally. we co- completely went over our heads. It's interesting, right? Like because I think um, you know, kind of the awards aren't necessarily as kind of meaningful as maybe they once were. Like I think, especially with you know, we were talking earlier about stadium artists in, in a previous podcast and how we're seeing more and more kind of niche artistry kind of coming up. And I feel like you kind of care who you care about, right? So the impact of pop music doesn't feel as kind of like penetrating across all different audiences as maybe it did 10, 15, or even longer uh, ago. Now with kind of, you know, kind of your your 
Tyler, the creators or your Frank Oceans or even kind of more niche artists, people don't necessarily care as much about who wins a pop music uh, award. And, and saying that, I mean, we've just also had the Grammys announced uh, as well in terms of the nominees. I was quite interested to see that actually I felt the new music category uh, or new, sorry, the new artist category was a lot broader than um, the American Music Awards, right? So you had groups like the Black Pumas, you had uh, Maggie Rogers, Rosalia, um, you know, kind of a couple of artists that I'm not too familiar with in, in Tank and the Bengas and Yola, but you had some really interesting uh, artists coming up, and I felt like the American Music Awards had more kind of your typical kind of pop uh, numbers in that that category, at least. Yeah, completely. I think the Grammys is doing a better job. I think of diversifying um, in their selection process. I see Dr. Dre is being um, awarded or recognized, mm. I think, for a Lifetime Achievements Award. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to kind of see, you know, Dre, even though maybe from the music side, yes, on the production piece with Kendrick and others, but he's got some, he's somebody who's got like a lot of previous experience and stuff that, you know, kind of maybe 10, 15 years ago, seeing one of the hip hop pioneers as getting this Lifetime uh, Achievement Award, maybe would have been a little bit more of, of an out there kind of guest to, to see somebody like Dre getting that award. But it's nice to see the Grammys actually becoming a little bit more broader in their reach. Completely. I think something just to highlight, though, if we were to compare or contrast the Grammys versus the American Music Awards versus the MTV European Music Awards is, you know, people say, oh, no one watches MTV. I don't buy that argument because the American Music Awards created a spectacle through its live performances. You had uh, Taylor Swift perform with Halsey and Camilla Cabello. You had um, Post Malone do his track with Travis Scott and Ozzy Osbourne. They almost burnt the no, burnt yeah. the, sta the stadium down, the venue down. Uh, you know, these these are encapsulating performances that are so memorable and they are widely distributed on social media. Can you name one that the MTV EMAs actually did? No. no. Whereas MTV was renowned for creating con controversy. Um, I guess that was part of the success of someone like Eminem's career was his relationship with MTV. Um, and I think that even the Grammys, they're starting to become more inclusive, which is important. And you will probably also start to see some very dynamic and thrilling performances across genre. Uh, maybe some collaborations that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like we've seen with Kendrick Lamar and Imagine Dragons in the past, as an example. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if an artist like Lizzo, who's been nominated um, you know, for Best Pop Solo, for Best Song, and for Best New Artist, to see if she kind of maybe can digs in the crates and, and who kind of comes along and performs with her. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the music industry. We've got awards that we've talked about, um, the new categorization, but... What are we talking about this week in terms of our one big thing, Dario? So this week we're talking about lyrics and law. So it's the controversial use of lyrics as evidence. And we're not just talking about rap. Yeah, we're going to go into rock. We're going to go into the history of you know, things like the explicit lyrics and adult warnings that have happened in, in the U.S. Uh, you know, for multiple decades now. Um, so I can't wait to, to dig in. So, so shall we kind of explore that topic? Let's kick it off. All right. So lyrics and law. Um, you know, this is... Something that's been going on almost for as long as I've been alive, but it's really kind of come into the spotlight more recently with uh, the Takashi 69 stuff that, that's been in the news. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more and give them some context around what's been happening with Takashi? Sure. So Takashi 69, I'm sure most of you are aware. Daniel Hernandez, SoundCloud rapper, rose to fame uh, with his with his music, uh, had been testifying in in the court in the U.S against the Nine Trey Gangster Bloods, um, which is the gang he associated himself with. 
Um, you know, he's, he's basically committed a crime in itself by snitching mm. in the hip hop community. So I guess, uh, you know, for a reduced sentence, which will have implications outside of, of, of jail time in itself within the communities. But uh, I think the, the point to highlight here really though, is that at one point prosecutors asked him about the lyrics for his hit song, Gamo, and whether any words in that song included any threats against rivals which you know he kind of gave a, a wishy-washy answer saying you know it, it's a song towards somebody who i don't get along with i don't know you know i thought it was cool at the time um but this opens up a huge can of worms yeah and this isn't like something that's been you know kind of new to to hip-hop and to music in general right i mean for hip-hop heads um you know the nwa f the police um, with the FBI and getting everyone excited around kind of uh, the law in terms of police and NWA is probably the thing that most people will point to and remember as a time when law enforcement got heavily involved in the music industry. But I think even 10 years prior to the NWA stuff, you had court cases with Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne in kind of the hard rock, heavy metal side of things where... Um, they were kind of used as, their lyrics were used as insightful hate speech um, where they were talking about suicide. And a lot of um, young, impressionable teenagers who were probably dealing with other things were listening to Judas Priest, were listening to Ozzy Osbourne and taking their lives. And so the courts were challenging how the influence of Judas Priest, how the influence of Ozzy Osbourne was having an impact on these young, impressionable teenagers. Many of you might know, or some of you might know, about Tipper Gore, who's the uh, wife of the former vice president and presidential candidate Al Gore. But she was quite influential in terms of taking what was happening in the music industry and ensuring that record labels, as well as distributors, as well as retail establishments, put on that explicit lyrics, parental advisory ah. stuff. So that was kind of her role. She did that as kind of going to the Senate in the US, uh, alongside the, the wife of another senator, uh, Susan Baker, who was the wife of James Baker, or Jim Baker. Um, they did a lot of this. And then, you know, kind of Two Live Crew was also in the late 80s, early 90s, and they were pushing it even further. So it became a sense of, well, this isn't just explicit. You know, this is almost violent or misogynistic or all of these other things that people had a real issue with. And the two life crew thing actually went really, really far up to the Supreme Court um, where they were challenging the indecency of those lyrics. I mean, me so horny and, you know, other things that the two life crew, I mean, that's probably the one I can get away with on a podcast like this. There's a lot of lyrics that two life crew did that were outright misogynistic, but they were putting on an act, right? They were kind of reflecting society as they knew it from the Miami dance, Miami urban scene. Um, you had artists that we know now as kind of quite clean cut in terms of like LL Cool J, who also had been arrested in Georgia for indecency with, you know, you, you wouldn't kind of listen to it now and think so, but I Need Love, which is one of LL Cool J's ultimate slow jams. He <laughs> was basically arrested for indecency because of his live performance of that event. And if you contrast that with NWA being arrested for performing 
F the police in Detroit. You know, rap rap probably had a huge impact in terms of taking things that were already an issue and turning it into a real societal contemplation around how do we evaluate, how do we assess the impact that these lyrics are having on youth and on other kind of societal factors and segments as well. And more recently, I think now you're seeing that kind of transition into, you know, kind of gangster rap from NWA saying F the police that transition through to Takashi, you know, there's been lots of incidences. The one that I kind of point to as a kind of a turning point was there was an artist on the No Limit kind of record label called Mac Phipps who was arrested and, and kind of convicted for, or not kind of, he was convicted for, for 30 years for murder, um, not because the evidence was clear that he actually did commit the murder, but because the police took some sample lyrics of his from two of his songs, put them together and kind of gave that evidence in court in order to convict him of a crime that more and more people today believe that he didn't commit. Um, and that's still being kind of fought uh, in the courts uh, today, I believe, to, to kind of overturn that, that wrongful conviction. I think something to highlight is that rap lyrics are typically used in three main ways. So they're either treated as confessions if they're written after the crime, they're treated as proof of intent if they're written before the crime, or they're classified as threats, and the lyrics being the crime themselves. So the, 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 the issue is, you know, in the U.S. legal system, you have a jury, and by using lyrics in these ways, you're manipulating the jury. And the law doesn't give judges the authority to ban evidence. So it, you basically... You're kind of skirting around the edges, right? Like you're kind of like taking the law and playing it almost in a way that maybe, you know, the, the people who wrote some of those laws didn't intend um, for it to be actually used. It's interesting to see how, this how different this becomes, right? Because in the cases of Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest and even maybe Marilyn Manson, right, there was that almost like urging of others to commit violent actions. And then when others did commit violent actions, there was some account to be held. Whereas in a lot of these other more recent hip hop related you know, and violence related or gang related kind of issues, there's been more of a direct impact as you know, kind of the, the rappers in question are themselves being accused of these crimes. And it's interesting how you say that you know, it's either the lyrics themselves as a threat or kind of the afterwards side of things happening. Do you have some explicit kind of um, examples where this has kind of been the case? For sure. You know, before I get into that, I just want to highlight, though, that, you know, with the likes of SoundCloud and YouTube and the fact that it's so easy to upload songs yourself, even Genius, um, there are more lyrics available than ever before for police and for people in the legal space to troll the internet, troll the internet and to actually... It's almost crime discovery. Exactly, it, you know? exactly. So you can basically paint your case in any way, shape or form that you wish. That's really sad as well, because I think the, the legal institution, especially in the U.S., um, is a numbers-driven game, right? So a lot of prosecutors have to try to kind of make numbers in terms of how many people they arrest or how many people they put in kind of the legal system or, or are able to convict. And when you have crimes like this, when you can point to lyrics um, as a result and as lyrics become a trend, so more and more even like, you know, kind of wannabe gangsters are maybe kind of putting those lyrics out, they're kind of exposing themselves as potential convictees for some of these prosecutors who are on the hunt. Sure, and, and something to highlight before I go into these cases is, you know, gangster rap maybe isn't as commercial as it used to be back, you know, maybe 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, but it's still very relevant 
to people within certain subcultures because it resonates with society. Thank God for emo rap. <laughs> well, even actually something quickly before we, we mm-hmm. go into these cases is you've got emo rap, like little peep who died of a Xanax overdose. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are encouraging, or little Xan, they're encouraging and promoting drug use. When is the time going to come that somebody who's a big fan of theirs, uh, you know, passes away from, from a drug overdose and someone scans through their Spotify, their SoundCloud, their Instagram, whatever it is, and sees, well, actually they were a massive fan of, of one of these artists, and then those people get prosecuted. Yeah, that's really interesting because even um, artists whose lyrics might not be so obviously towards either depression or mental health issues, like Love, who I'm a big fan of, who's not a, a hip hop artist, but is more of a dance pop artist, you know, he deals a lot with kind of feeling depressed in his music, and how he's dealing with it is in a positive kind of way when you look at the lyrics in whole. But unfortunately, not everybody has that kind of context or takes the time to kind of see the message, right? So I think that's a great point that actually you could take a snippet of even a Love lyric and point to how that could influence somebody to taking action in, in, in that way. Completely. So just a couple couple cases here. And, you know, we, we're neutral on these, on these decisions. But just uh, to kind of give some context, you had a, a Texas rapper by the name of Tay K uh, who... Uh, murdered one individual in 2016 and is now facing 55 years of prison um, because during sentence during sentencing prosecutors introduced the video and lyrics for the race which is a music video of his um, as well as the cover of his ep living like larry which then depicted the 16 year old rapper holding a gun and uh you know this exacerbated the the overall sentencing you know the same thing applies to ynw melly uh who released murder on my mind one and a half years earlier than when he shot and killed two associates of his he's currently facing the death penalty and there there are a variety of other rappers or you know lesser known rappers that we can go into here you know you could look at nba young boy or kind of renamed young boy never broke again which is an interesting case because the louisiana judge said your genre has a lot to do with the mindset people have and your genre has normalized violence. And this highlights something interesting because it, it's the fact that somebody can generalize and point to the fact that, oh, it's hip hop's fault or the, the genre of music's fault for, um, for crime is, is ludicrous. I mean, you know, maybe that type of, uh, w- that way of thinking or thought process may have been more relevant during the times of NWA with F the Police. But in, in 2019... Uh, I don't know. I don't really buy it. You know, it's hard because in one way you could say it's in inciting, but on the other side, it's actually a reflection, right? These are kind of the communities. These are the you know, kind of backgrounds of some of these people that are coming through this. And it's not just music, right? So, And it's not just the U.S. So when we look at another kind of really recent thing, um, there's a gang movie in the U.K. called Blue Story, and there's been brawls in the cinemas where this movie has shown. Now, the movie is a realistic reflection, as you might kind of consider Top Boy. I mean, Top Boy is maybe on the extreme side. I don't know if the gun violence in the UK is as much as Top Boy tries to kind of proclaim. But at the same time, Blue Story is a more gritty, more kind of localized kind of view around kind of people in gangs. And the irony is that, you know, it was kind of put together by somebody who actually escaped the gang wars, and now you're seeing kind of those gang brawls happening. So the question of, is art inciting this violence, or is art reflecting 
this violence is a really important one for people to discuss. And this goes all the way back to your Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbournes, to your Loves, to your Marilyn Mansons, as well as your M&Ms and others, where people are actually reflecting their experiences and they're reflecting the, the stuff that they're seeing. I think where it becomes a fine line is where you know, kind of the artists themselves are being held to account for trying to kind of flow into that area where they're holding a gun and they're trying to look menacing and trying to build this character and yet they're then being accosted for being that person where maybe it's just an artist's portrayal of what criminal violence actually looks like and maybe not the real thing. And I think that's the line that we have to be careful with. Sure, I uh, I completely agree with that. And you know, you mentioned Marilyn Manson. Well, Manson was accused uh, for inciting um, or, or leading to the inspiration of the 1999 Columbine massacre in, in Colorado in the US because it turns out that the shooters were Marilyn Manson fans. Uh, something just which popped up into my head was you know, Jimmy Iovine had a tough time in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. You had Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. You had Marilyn Manson. You were working with Dr. Dre. And then Eminem comes into the scene. I mean, causing, causing untold havoc uh, in society. Um, to, to point to the likes of, of lyrics and how they're used against you, I mean, Eminem is a good example. And I know I talk about him a lot, but I, I guess, you know, we, we tend to sometimes forget that he was sued by his mother for $10 million. He was then sued by his ex-wife, Kim, for the track Kim on the Marshall Mathers LP, where he talks about, you know, murdering her. You know, he's, he's been investigated by George Bush in his song Marsh for, for hate speech against the president of the United States. And more recently, by the, the Trump administration for, again, threats towards uh, Trump and his family on the revival album in 2017. Yeah, it's interesting that that Trump kind of suit hasn't made kind of more noise, right? Like, it's interesting that when Trump talks about, like, NBA players uh, and sports athletes, I think that gets a lot more headlines than actually him filing lawsuits against the likes of Eminem. Um, it's interesting that, that we're seeing that, right? And in Eminem's case, it's a real kind of reflection on his own personal kind of experiences, right, with direct relationships. In a lot of these other artists' case, it's a reflection of what they're seeing, in society, mm. and I think this is where the courts struggle, is drawing that line between an artist kind of reflecting what they see and an artist actually having that experience. I mean, there's no doubt that Takashi 69 was involved in some sketchy kind of gang-related activities, but there are other artists that are on the peripheral kind of side or the periphery of gang violence who are basically telling the story or reflecting what they're seeing, and then, then they're being prosecuted almost um, intentionally and and maliciously to, to kind of make a point about how rap is actually in, inciting this, whereas I look at it as art is kind of reflecting this. It's interesting to see in the U.S. whether it's gang games or games around kind of Grand Theft Auto or whatever else it might be, that the courts and the media are more likely to, to look at those as kind of inciting behavior rather than kind of looking at the underlying availability of guns and availability and kind of lack of police control over some of these or police engagement with some of these com communities, right, as well. So I don't think we want to go too hard into that stuff. Yeah. It can get quite emotional, but I think it is quite interesting to see that reflection of where do you draw the line between an artist reflecting what they see and an artist experiencing things or an artist having experienced these things and actually being 
criminally negligent or criminally implicable in some of these kind of violent acts. Yeah, completely. I think something just to be cognizant of is that, you know, in the US and in multiple countries, actually, prosecutors have attributed lyrics from artists to a defendant. In California, you had somebody sample Dr. Dre lyrics. And in a myriad of other examples where people have pulled excerpts from songs from all genres, and uh, they've they've suffered repercussions from that. Um, and I think in today's transparent world and this this uh, social media world, where also everybody is uh, you know quite sensitive with regards to to what is said and heard, it can create some some serious problems. So I think people just also need to be a bit more conscious as well as a fan uh, to sometimes be a little bit more thoughtful behind. Uh, the choices they make in, in maybe quoting lyrics to to seem cool. I mean, I know people used to do it when Facebook was popular, mm. and uh, I guess when now Facebook was popular, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now now it doesn't really really happen so much anymore. Well, at least amongst my social circles, but um, I'm sure it still does in, in the younger generations. Yeah, I mean, whether that's maybe like TikTok or whether it's other Twitter or other channels as well. You know, I'm sure. And actually, I, I know some cases as well where, you know, kind of the authorities are using Twitter and, and other kind of social media channels to discover people who are up to criminal activity, right? It's interesting to see how, you know, somebody putting it in art is also being kind of attacked or is being kind of accused. You know, I think, um, you know, we had Tupac Shakur earlier on, as well as Biggie, you know, who were kind of involved in some criminal activity, whether it was through gangs, whether it was through drug trade. Um, as well. And it's interesting. I wonder if, you know, the courts today had a new kind of Biggie album talking about the drug trade today been released or even a Jay-Z album, you know, from 20 years ago, popularized kind of the, the standing on the, the corner selling drugs. It'd be interesting to see how far the authorities would go with some of that lyrical content today. Totally. I think uh, it's something to keep an eye on. Even if you're not that interested in the legal side of it, it's just, uh, it holds a very thoughtful message. It's very thought-provoking, um, you know, just, just in general, whether you're a fan, whether you're an artist, yeah. um, whether you're a, you're a professional in the legal or the music space. I mean, what do you think about it, Dario? I mean, uh, you know, like personally, um, I think there needs to be a little bit more of a line drawn, right? And some kind of understanding that actually what is art and what is actual intent, right? I feel quite kind of emotional around kind of seeing some of these rap artists, but also some of these metal artists or hard rock artists from years ago who are putting out what I believe is a reflection of how they're feeling and how they're seeing other people feel. And I feel like the law is maybe overstepping some of their bounds in some of these cases. Um, how, how do you view it? Yeah, so the, I see it in two ways. On the one end, it's if you've committed murder, or you've committed a crime, then you should you deserve to be punished for that, right? But if you are just putting music out there, and, and if you happen to be putting out music, and, that, and that's the case, and you can draw some form of correlation between the two, then so be it. Right. But you can't use that music as a, to point fingers at somebody to justify that their sentence should be worse, necessarily. Mm. Um, but when it comes to, to music itself, I think that freedom of expression is so important. You know, a lot of artists in the 90s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s wouldn't be the big names that they are if it weren't for a bit of controversy because it's, it's you know, warts and all, that's life. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the line is actually around kind of what is their actual behavior and what other evidence is there around those crimes, right? I mean, when Dre and Ice Cube and others 
were talking about F the police. They were really talking as young black men. They weren't talking as criminals. In fact, you know, I believe the story is that um, Ice Cube was on his way to college, right? Dre was quite the smart, almost engineer, right, kind of talent. Yeah. These weren't people who were going around brandishing arms. I mean, maybe Easy e was a little bit sketchy in his <laughs> behaviors, but really it was Dre and Cube who were doing a lot of the writing, who were doing a lot of the performing. And if you kind of contrast reality to their lyrics, you would see a wide divergence between who they were as people and what they were portraying or what they were reflecting in terms of what they saw in society. And I think the law has to do a better job of saying, okay, here's the evidence that so-and-so has committed this crime. And here maybe is some context around what that individual is like. Whereas I feel like it's reversed and they're seeing the lyrics are the evidence and the context is that they were maybe available to commit that crime. And I don't know if that's really the way we want laws to be prosecuting people. So uh, that was intense. Uh, so <laughs> on, a, on a lighter note, let's talk about new music this week because there's a lot. Uh, we had The weekend release a new track called Heartless on Tuesday, which, sorry, on Wednesday, which was actually... Um, uh, you know, a nice change for once instead of music always being released on Friday. It's a great track. I'm really excited for his new album. I know that he's also got a song called Electric that's coming out. He's in partnership with Mercedes-Benz to help promote their new EV. Um, we've got two massive album releases this week. One from The Game, which is called Born to Rap. I've spoken about it before. It's been delayed multiple times. They had a listening party in Q3 of this year. It's a, it's quite a long album. It's supposedly 25 tracks. It's his last album to be released. He's gone independent. If I look at the feature list though, in the game's normally a guy who has some pretty solid features. He's got strong relationships with practically everybody in the industry. The, the feature list's a bit weird. He's got um, an opening track and a closing track with Ed Sheeran. Uh, you know, the first kind of popular release from the album is Stainless featuring Anderson Park. But others that are involved in the album, he's got D Smoke from uh, Rhythm and Flow. Uh, he's got Chris Brown, 21 Savage, Nipsey Hussle, the late Nipsey Hussle. He's got uh, Miguel and Travis Barker. And then he's kind of filled it up with some lesser known artists to me, probably more important or more relevant for the US, likes of Dom Kennedy, Red Cafe, and a few others who, Bryson Tiller, and a few others I won't really go into. It's interesting to see that reflection of emerging artists and kind of established artists and, and also kind of poppy artists with the Ed Sheerans uh, and the like. It's interesting you mentioned Ed Sheeran on, on the game side. The song that I've been kind of rinsing uh, the most over the last week is, is the new Stormzy track uh, featuring Burna Boy and Ed Sheeran own it. Um, I can't get enough of that track. I think it's important to say as well that we're recording this on a Thursday, so there might be more new music on tomorrow. Um, so we're going to try and kind of record at least one or two more podcasts this side of 2019 uh, as well. Other songs that I've been uh, listening to quite a bit, um, Melanin from Ciara actually is featuring uh, a pretty tight verse from Lupita Nyong'o. <laughs> no the, way. Yeah, the Oscar winning uh, no way. Uh, actress delivers some real fire on the Melanin track. Um, as well as Maggie Rogers, uh, who's nominated, as we mentioned earlier, for one of the best new artists in the Grammys coming up. She's got a new track, which is which is really, really cool. And if you reflect that with an established head, uh, Paul McCartney also has a new song okay. this week called Home Tonight, which actually I felt like 
is the most like a Paul McCartney Beatles track that I've heard in a really, really long time. So if you are a Beatles fan, um, you know Paul McCartney's new track, Home Tonight, uh, is a pretty good one. Um, on the UK side, uh, Steflon Don with Gecko, Dino, and Dappy, they have a song together called Link Up, which I also really enjoyed. Harry Styles, who hosted Saturday Night Live. Uh, yes, I forgot he's, about He's released a new album. The first track, actually, it's probably the song that I've enjoyed the most from a Harry Styles as a solo artist called Watermelon uh, Sugar. So, I like that one as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see Harry Styles, I think, finally kind of discovering himself. Um, I believe uh, Liam and and some of the others from from uh, from One Direction have kind of gone on that journey. And it's nice to see Harry Styles kind of like finding his lane. It looks like he's trying to do a bit of a Mick Jagger-esque type vibe, the album cover and everything. I uh, see them, them advertising for, for it on the tube. Um, but yeah, Watermelon Sugar is a great track. One of the album releases I'm really looking forward to, if you're a, if you're a real old school hip-hop head, Farhan, I think you might like this one, is Griselda is finally releasing their WWCD nice. um, record on, on Friday, which is their first album release from Shady Records. Griselda comprises of West Side Gun, Conway the Machine, and Benny the Butcher. I mean, individually, their tracks are awesome. Uh, the, you know, they, they call themselves the new kings in New York. Mm-hmm. I see uh, Conway got pretty uh, stroppy with the complex for, for not announcing the album release as something serious. But what I like about them is that they have not budged from their style. They don't care if they're not mainstream. They put out solid hip hop. If you don't like it, you can take a walk. But uh, yeah. Yeah, the last track I'll mention is uh, Janae Aiko and Big Sean, None of Your Concern, which is interesting because I think they've gone through their relationships ups and downs and they've recorded this track together. That's getting a little bit of buzz and I'll let you kind of Google to kind of discover what the story is between Janae Aiko and Big Sean because we're not that kind of show. <laughs> but I think that's been a good kind of couple of weeks of music and, and hopefully you hear some more for us in the next couple of weeks as well. Totally. So I think one thought to leave you with before we go is that Post Malone's Hollywood's Bleeding won the American Music Awards Rap Hip Hop Album of the Year. However, only 12% of that album was rap. 11 of the 17 tracks have no rapping from Post Malone. And Post only raps more than he sings on I Know, which is 59.8% of the time. (laughs) Thank you for that insight, Dario. All right, well, that does it for episode eight of Middle School Music, where old school meets new school. I've been Farhan Lalji uh, with my co-host, Dario Duet. You can find us on Twitter at MDLSKL underscore music. You can find me on Twitter at Farhan Lalji. Dario, where can the good listeners find you? Ultimate tongue twister. (laughs) Um, You can find me on Twitter on at Dario underscore Duet with a W. Well, thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Ciao. Bye-bye. Can I listen to your